So shortly before this call started, I found out Eugene's not wearing pants, which would be yeah, wildly so, inappropriate, except for the fact that we're not actually in the same room. So yeah. So I don't know who else has this policy, but when I'm at home and I'm sitting on a surface, I don't wear street clothes. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> and I would never yeah. ever in the world wear street clothes on my bed. But, but some people do. I know, some people do. You. Isn't that crazy? I'm kind of judging them. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Okay, so for today's subjects, the question is, do the numbers come before the letters when you alphabetize something? Yeah, I think numbers come first, to be honest. Okay, well, in that case... So you go first. Yes. I did not rig this. It's not like it's a game. I again forgot that that was the system until after I had written the subject line. Okay, so my subject this week is that the 2019 MacArthur Grant winners have been announced in the past week. And the MacArthur Grant is a grant given by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. It is a no-strings-attached $625,000 USD paid out over the course of five years in even segments. And what the foundation says is the goal of the grant is to advance their expertise, engage in bold new work, or if they wish to change fields or alter the direction of their careers. They have this hope for what the grant can do, but it is like no strings attached. They don't monitor these people's progress. I'm going to read a statement from John Palfrey, who's the president of the foundation, specifically regarding this year's winners. And he said, from addressing the consequences of climate change to furthering our understanding of human behavior to fusing forms of artistic expression, this year's 26 extraordinary MacArthur Fellows demonstrate the power of individual creativity to reframe old problems, spur reflection, create new knowledge, and better the world for everyone. They give us reason for hope, and they inspire us all to follow our own creative instincts. And that kind of gets at something that I'm interested in talking about, but go put a put pin in it, say a little bit more about the facts of this. So nominees are named by external nominators who range across different fields and interests. So the fellows themselves, they don't put their own names forward. It's a surprise phone call that they get. And they, they had no idea they were even in the running for it. And there are three criteria that the foundation says they use for selection. Exceptional creativity, promise for important future advances based on a track record of significant accomplishments, and potential for the fellowship to facilitate subsequent creative work. For this year's winners, there is, out of the 26, there's a philosopher, three writers, a literary scholar, a translator, composer, choreographer, two historians, five artists, three criminal justice reformers, seven scientists, and an urban designer, just to give a sense of the types of people involved. And so one of the things I was really interested in personally, before I even decided to talk about today, is that I find this really useful for myself to get put onto new work and people who are doing innovative, interesting things in the field that I might not have heard of. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like just personally something people might be interested in looking at, like to look at these 26 names and then see, oh yeah, like I'm interested in, you know, your topic is the climate crisis. So I'm interested in the climate crisis. There's like these seven scientists on this list who are doing interesting work and probably who I haven't heard of, which I think is like one thing that MacArthur is really good about, unlike, let's say, the Nobel Prize, because the MacArthur kind of focuses on people in the early and middle stages of their career. So it's like, mm -hmm. I can see who's doing interesting things immediately 
in the field. So that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about it to just say that I think of it as a good resource. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting topic because generally speaking, how do you approach these types of topics? Because are you talking about the individual winners? Is it more of a a bite-sized news bit where you're like, hey, these people won these awards or what were granted these uh, these prizes. When you look at this sort of list of winners, right? Mm-hmm. Does something like this change whether or not you trust them? Like what 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 is the layer of trust here? Why do you have trust in MacArthur that they've chosen the right people to win these awards? That's a really good question, actually. Because I'm actually not that familiar with the MacArthur Foundation. Yeah, me neither. And actually, the MacArthur Foundation does other things besides giving out this MacArthur grant. And I didn't have like a pre-existing body of knowledge about what the foundation does other than give out the grant. But the grant has always been on my radar. And I guess one of the reasons I want to talk about it is just because like we haven't on this podcast before, and maybe some people aren't familiar with it. The grant itself is really interesting because it's a no strings attached, very large sum of money, right? Which is an interesting question in itself. Like, what do you do if you got a large sum of money with no strings attached? But as to like why we trust or why I would trust the MacArthur Foundation is really just about past record. It, but it is, it is subjective because like, I don't, they don't say who their external nominators are. So... I can't even say like who it is that I'm individually trusting other than like the, this kind of opaque organization of the MacArthur Foundation. Has anyone that's won an award gone on to be recognized on a, on a greater scale because they became a household name? I only bring that up because I wonder if that is a way to showcase credibility. If you're consistently able to identify people that go on to do bigger and better things then in some ways that's sort of talent identification talent obviously not being the best word to use here but it's more like hey these people actually put their money where their mouth is at and they're actually really good at what they say they're going to do so to answer your question this is a little bit of failure of preparation on my part but i do believe that if you looked at the past winners over the last 30 years of the macarthur you would find names that you would recognize immediately. Like I have total confidence in that, except that I didn't pre-prep past winners for this conversation. One of them I do know who's a winner is Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, He won in 2015. He's a writer, right? He's a writer. Because of my own interest, I also know another winner is Susan Sontag, who is also another writer. So if if you were the kind of person who were like familiar with scientists, then you might be more aware of the scientists on the list versus the people I'm aware of on the list are mostly writers, which is also the case for this year's list. And so part of the reason I have, this is again subjective, but part of the reason I have faith in, or I trust, as you said, the MacArthur Foundation is because two of the recognizable names on this list are people whose work I already really admired. And so there's the additional level of not just like, oh, there's these other people who I haven't heard of and I'd like to investigate, but there are these people I know who are getting this like push through the grant. And the two people I'm yeah. aware of were Linda Berry and Ocean Vong. Linda Berry is a graphic novelist, cartoonist, and educator who focuses on making comics about childhood and then also teaching people to write and draw. And she's really great. I would, I think you should look at her work. Yeah. And then Ocean Vong is a poet and fiction writer who is really definitely a rising literary star and he he writes about intergenerational trauma and the refugee experience so i think that answers your question but it is subjective like i can't say like oh there's some kind of external validating assessment body overseeing the macarthur yeah like my question actually was rooted in given that it's not an insignificant amount of money but is it still not enough to make a big push if that makes sense you don't think so oh no i'm just curious because like I, I i don't know if that's necessarily the best indicator of success in terms of becoming a household name oh. but it's more in the lines that like hey if i'm granted you know more than half a million dollars but there isn't a steady stream of people that are kind of coming to the forefront of redefining or shaping culture in a household capacity then yeah. 
would it make more sense? I'm just throwing out there like, oh, let's actually condense the number of winners, but double up how much they take. Mm. And maybe there's stipulations. Interesting. That's kind of my my take on it. And I, I think that it's just knowing how expensive things can be when you're trying to make something new that maybe there's something there. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting for several reasons that I see connected between like our topics today. And one of them is this idea that like the MacArthur is really focused on individual work and furthering how that work might help society. And they are not so concerned about fame necessarily or like household name recognition. But I do see what you're saying here about like this link between household name recognition and making a societal change really going to become relevant when we talk about your subject. And I still think 625,000 over five years is a good chunk of money. I mean, basically you don't need to work. You could work, you could, I mean, that's in many ways, I don't know how they need to spend their money, but that's, let's say you pay yourself, you know, 75 grand a year. That's, you know, you could stretch that out. But what I'm, trying to say like i think that's the thing is understanding what success looks like mm-hmm. because it's not an insignificant amount of money it's not chump change but if you really want to make things work is it good enough to just bestow money in the hands of somebody yeah. or is that actually more useful if well, you become like a it's almost like a almost like a team project i don't know well, if there's like okay man team project my goodness. I, I say team project only on the basis that there's a ways that you can share resources. Like it almost feels better if if you took a headcount. A headcount sounds weird. Now I'm getting so like wrapped up in the world of like, you know, corporate dragon and whatnot. But it's more along the lines of if there's 26 people, what happens if you only gave away 20 prizes and those six people, you took that money and they became support staff for building the relevant sort of structures to push forward all these people's different <sighs> things. And I, I say this because like, if you're a writer, maybe it's someone helping you to do business development and maybe you're out there getting you speaking engagements. I don't know. Interesting. That is interesting. That's a more involved kind of grant as I see it, like what you're describing, whereas this is more like, the gift of this is not just the money, but the fact that like, we're not going to chase you up. And this, is, which is like a blessing and a curse, right? On one hand, you don't get given the support structures that you're describing. But on the other hand, you also don't have like that responsibility or that attachment. Yeah. And I can see people thriving under different conditions, like under those two different sort of proposals. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm getting off track here in terms of what I've just mentioned, but I really think that right now in terms of building anything new, there's so many parts of it that even if you were to take that amount of money and you needed to build a team or whatever it may be, like maybe this is even my I think own you're not, and not knowing. I think you're I think I feel like you're extremely business minded at wherever like state of mind you're in because these are really individual practitioners. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that if the ultimate goal, it's more like the way I look at it, whether it's making, it's not really about making money off of their efforts. It's about building up the structure to allow them to focus on what they're doing best. Well, that's what giving them the money does. But then not every person is capable of building the team and like managing people, et cetera. Well, but everybody on the list is already working and sustainable prior to this money infusion like these aren't 18 year old fresh graduates who are broke living in people's basements like they have functioning sustainable careers at the point when they're like given this gift of money does that make sense so they're not they're not building something new from scratch they're in the process of doing the thing already sorry i I, it's not about building something new it's about it's about pursuing something that is innovative. And I think innovation is what I'm trying to get at. That's what's expensive. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, I think the people they give this to are already doing the innovative thing. And so this is support 
for their continuing efforts. My perspective is that it's more than sufficient. And is it extremely generous, you know, propelling someone in the correct direction? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I guess for me, I'm not, I definitely don't want to come across like I'm shitting on anybody. It's just more so like, how do you maximize uh, your ability to make something successful? Yeah, I mean, no, I, yeah. I, I respect like thinking about, you know, what if it was 13 people instead of 26 and you doubled the amount of money? Yeah. But I don't see this particular organization as like trying to do something where, or I don't think it's necessary to step into people's lives at this point and say like, we also suggest like, this is how you build a team or like create support for your work. It's more mm -hmm. like having the freedom to do what you want with that money. Even if like what you, and this was a question I thought about asking you, but I feel like we've talked about it before. Like if you were given the MacArthur grant, how would you spend your money? If I was to be very honest, I would probably spend it in a way where I would allow myself to have continual revenue coming in. What does that mean? So like build a business around it so that, so that after five years, the money is theoretically supposed to run out, but it won't run out because I've found a way to structure it in a way where like, hey, you know what? I've created some sort of structure. There's ongoing revenue coming in that I can mm. continue what I'm trying to do. So that's why, like for me, I think that being innovative and having the capabilities of, you know, redefining culture, like that's a skill into itself. But then is every person that's able to do that also a business person? Why do they have to be? Because I think that that's what you're trying to do is that to me is what drives the long-term sustainability of this. I'm not doing this because I think business is like the fun thing. No, no, I business understand. Is the thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, to, I was looking to let at the you list. do it longer. Yeah. And I was looking at the list. I'm like, if you are, for example, that scientist, right? How can I find a way to ensure that the money doesn't run out and you always have funding? Like, are there things that you yourself could you could participate in, you know, maybe mm -hmm. you're giving talks, maybe you're doing consulting or whatever. Someone's helping you manage that versus mm -hmm. you yourself. And then suddenly, hey, you know what? Like, actually, I've turned this grant into, you know, 10, 15 years worth of runway. That's kind of how I'm thinking of it. Yeah. No, that's kind of the answer I would have expected from you. If it was me, I would move to a small town somewhere probably in the states and it's, it's funny you say that hole up by myself and just try to make work in my house and that's that's what i would do this is, which is not i think what you would do um which is interesting and to not say that like i'm unconcerned about the future but i would just think of it as like having this massive um freedom for five years to not think about how am i going to put food on the table but to just try and use that time to make work that i couldn't make otherwise basically universal basic income on steroids yes yeah yes i don't know and i guess no no this is what i'm about to say is going to be sound naive i'm going to say it anyway but i think that like if you go my route, for example, and you just continue, use that freedom to make artistic work or make innovative work in your field, then that work will get further recognition and money will come mm -hmm. your way. But I know that my, like what I'm proposing is like a more hands off, less like let's engineer this to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Oh, there was one more thing I wanted to talk about, which is the fact that the MacArthur is an external nominator and that the people don't know about it, which I really like in terms of getting validation. So instead of like people applying to competitions or jobs or fellowships or whatever it is, it's people in your field saying like, I recognize your work. And I think that mm -hmm. that's a really great motivator as well. And it, which is why I, something I wrote in the notes was like, how can we scale that aspect? where you don't need to give people money, but it's more like saying, hey, I have been noticing your work and I think that what you do is like important and valuable. And maybe it's just the fact that like, 
Do you ever randomly tell people that you appreciate their work? Mm, I do, I guess. I mean, I would say some of the stories we've done on Macon have been a byproduct. Maybe not directly like, hey, great work, period, take care, sign off, and that's it. Like, it's usually like, hey, would you be interested in elaborating and telling people more about your story? That's probably more in line with it. And I, I don't know if I'm trying to associate me trying to tell your story with me appreciating your work. Mm, I think there is a little bit of a difference because you are also like asking for something when you ask people if you want, you know, an interview, for example. But mm -hmm. that is the basis of it as well as like just reaching out to people that are, who are not your friends, who you don't know like personally and emailing them or whatever saying, I think your work's really good and it's important. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people do that very much. So yeah, yeah. Is that is that our cue to move on? That is your cue to move on. Okay, then let's do it. My subject this week is luxury leader at LVMH in green mode laments Thunberg's pessimism. So this article emanated from Reuters and it was a short piece, relatively short, that discussed some of the insights from LVMH's boss, Bernard Arnault. The preface to this is that earlier in the week, 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg gave an impassioned speech to the UN around climate crisis. If you haven't heard it, we'll play a snippet of it right here. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? So separately, LVMH boss Bernard Arnault separately discussed the company's upcoming green goals around sustainability and whatnot. And within the Reuters article, LVMH and their competitors are, in quotes, seeking to improve its environmental credentials and keep young consumers on side. So basically, appease them in a way. If I was to be very direct about it, just find ways to keep them engaged with their luxury brands and basically represent what are the, I guess, branding requirements of our times right now. You mean how the brand can remain relevant to young people? Yeah, yeah. That's a much less complicated way of saying it. I can only do it with you saying your bit first, and then I'm like, oh, this is what Eugene actually means. Yeah, yeah. So LVMH are aiming to achieve and exceed their goals of deriving 30% of its energy needs from renewable resources by 2020. So exceed which is a bit of a rarity. Usually it's like, oh, we won't meet them. And they're also aiming to cut CO2 emissions by 25% by 2020. So that's another thing that they're on pace to meet and or exceed. That's so cool. generally speaking, I guess LVMH has done a pretty good job, right? Yeah, but then I mean, they're, back, they're doing something. Yes, they, they are. And then circling back to Bernard's comments, he said that Greta's vision in quotes, has a demoralizing side to it for young people. She's not proposing anyway, aside from criticism. He further went on to say that he prefers positive solutions that allow us to get towards a more optimistic position. Yeah. So why were you interested in this? I think that it was 
a combination of the times around the challenges faced by fashion. And I say challenges mm. more so in the sense like it's just the reality, right? Like obviously people are now super cognizant of the impact of fashion in the world around them. That's one way of looking at it. Number two was, was this Arnaud being on the defensive because he recognizes that if he loses the Greta generation, then he loses, you know, the future in terms of people that will essentially not be interested in luxury goods. That's yeah. kind of the business side of it. And then the third one is also the gross dismissal of Greta and her platform. I think those three points to me were very interesting and very hard to unpack. But I had a very like visceral reaction to this. The reason why it was it kind of hit a nerve with me was like I was thinking like honestly speaking like the way that she's presenting herself is a representation of how many people are thinking but it seems that people that are dismissing her obviously have an agenda or they don't fully understand everything around them it's that it's almost as though the objectivity is one side and then everyone else is on the other side mm. or someone else that has an agenda and i think that's the part that i found really hard to wrap my head around and to kind of understand people's arguments like there's there's obviously a ton of assholes out there that have just been attacking her but then there's also people that are in some way seen as more respected more objective and then seeing how they react to it because knowing a lot of their business is driven by consumption right like luxury yeah. and fashion yeah are extraneous requirements to society like we could remove fashion tomorrow fashion not clothing fashion and we would still exist but you if you removed other facets of society then you'd be in for a much harder ride yeah oil for example like as bad as oil is like transportation whatever production all those things are are requirements but then fashion is honestly not at all needed well yeah i mean i we don't know our nose inner thoughts but let's Let's say that he's not totally stupid, and which yeah. means that he recognizes what you've just said as well—that luxury. Goods no, I don't think so. Are not crucial. You don't think, think so. he recognizes that luxury goods are not crucial to like human existence. I think that the other way of of presenting it is that humans need to create, and humans are innately creative. So I, I you, really you think, think that's that, our nose position. I would say that that would be well. I guess the thing is that. If someone pressed him on it, what are the different lanes he could take? He could be, obviously, he'll never defer to the side of, yeah, you're right. Luxury is super extra and we don't need it. Okay, it, you, I think it falls within yeah. the value, the creative value and the cultural value that comes with fashion. No, you're right. I shouldn't I shouldn't try to project into Arno's mind anyway. But like, let's look at what Arno says. Okay. He says, he says essentially that Greta doesn't provide hope and that she's too pessimistic and if i had to say like why he would say that it my interpretation of his comments lvmh needs her generation to be hopeful about the future in order to keep consuming fashion goods mm -hmm. like they're kind of contingent on each other no totally so if looking back at Arno's comments, he criticizes Greta for being demoralizing and not being optimistic enough. And this is a criticism that actually other people have also leveled at Thunberg and young climate activists, you know, saying that they are extremely pessimistic about the future, too much so, and that they're not being hopeful or like cheerful enough. And so, like, my question to you is like, what is the role of pessimism and optimism in the conversation about the climate crisis i think the big thing around this argument and the pessimism is that it's rooted in objectivity it's not opinion based and the fact that it's rooted in objectivity and science means that it's actually not up for debate in terms of whether or not it's your opinion versus my opinion and what i mean by that is that if you look at the amount of global warming going on and the impact there's a whole list of things happening right in terms of uh the death of phytoplankton what happens when all the 
uh, permafrost in Russia thaws and then it releases methane and it all sort of compounds, right? Like this is stuff that I think generally speaking is not necessarily presented on an everyday basis in mainstream media, probably more in like the scientific journals and, and whatnot. But I think that that to me is what makes this pessimism warranted yeah. versus, hey, I believe this versus you believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's maybe something missing in our understanding. And like you said, like how mainstream media talks about Thunberg and young climate activists, which is that they're not just angry and upset subjectively because they feel like being angry and upset. They're pessimistic because the science says, hey, like the earth is really screwed. So pessimism feels like that's the correct answer to the situation. Yeah. I also see Thunberg's role within this actually a little bit different. Like Thunberg's role isn't necessarily to be the scientist or the policymaker with the solutions. Thunberg is the communication medium yeah. to get the message out. Yeah. And I think that how often there are certain instances where some people can effectuate the whole gamut of things need to change, right? Whether it's the media, the actual policymaking, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you know? I think that we put her to a certain standard and all these sort of teen activists to a certain standard. But the reality is that there are very few adults that actually are doing the whole thing. Yeah. I think she sees her own role as that too. Like, I'm not an expert. You know, she says that, like, I'm not, a, I'm not an adult scientist. I'm not a policymaker. Like, you scientists and policymakers and, like, governmental institutions, et cetera, like, you guys are the ones who need to do this, do the actual acting. And, you know, part of me is, like, kind of questioning my own stance on this in that where where do I stand within all of this in terms of do I recognize that there are certain things I do that are detrimental to this planet? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. There's certain things I could do that are better. I could go cold turkey, never buy anything new ever mm-hmm. again, right? That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. What does that mean for me myself? I don't know. Like I, I, go, I go through that contradiction actually quite regularly, <laughs> like in terms of thinking all that stuff. I look at something like a LVMH and I was thinking, oh man, like how do I actually feel about this? Because I felt actually, I, I, I low-key, like I felt pretty, not upset. I was like, yo man, like that's kind of pretty, pretty shitty to come out and take that stance. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you can see yourself actually making a difference, but the reality is that like, what happens if you'd never sell another LV monogram bag again? In thinking about Thunberg and all of these adult reactions to her, I also feel a little bit like our attention is being diverted. And I really I respect Thunberg and also all of the young climate activists, but I feel like as adults and you know Arnaud and the UN, etc shouldn't we be focusing more on like the actual actions we're going to take rather than concerning ourselves with like the optics of young activists? Yeah. I think Thunberg and young activist work is important, but I think the fact that like the media then blow it into this entire thing where we're just like talking about the events of children speaking to the UN is like not the productive answer. I do think that it's interesting that we're sitting in kind of like a landslide moment. The thing I'm curious about is that the cultural battle that's being waged right now is the youth versus everyone that dismisses the youth, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be interesting to see who wins out because the people that are dismissive of the youth, they control a lot of the conduits within culture, right? Mm -hmm. They're the brand owners, they're the media bosses, all that stuff. So who inevitably becomes the champion of this? Like who's going to win that cultural battle? I don't, I don't, I don't know enough. Like I don't hang out enough with like, uh, let's say other 16 year olds to understand what they're saying about Greta's whole 
positioning. Like, I don't know if they're like, oh yeah, like I'm totally on her side or whatever. I mean, judging by the level of climate strikes that took place around the world last Friday. Actually, that's a really good point. Yeah. I would say a lot of young people are really on board. So, yes, I mean, this is another bit of news, I guess, that's adjacent is so Greta became known through doing school strikes on Fridays. And then last Friday was a global climate strike calling for people to step out of schools and workplaces, et cetera, and take to the streets and, you know, ask for change from the people in charge. And the the photos are amazing. Like the amount of people, a lot of kids, like a lot of students present. Yeah, that actually, that's a good point. I think that confirms it, I guess. Even if the cultural battle is kind of disappointing in the way that a lot of adults like Arno are like, you know, making hits against these young people, they're not that young, right? Like Greta is 16 and then her peers are also, you know, 15 to 18. So they're going into universities, they're entering, I would imagine a lot of them are entering STEM fields and fields in which that they can make change themselves. I know that obviously like they would prefer adults take action immediately rather than waiting for them to like grow up and do the action themselves. But eventually we'll get there where where they are the people in charge which is not to say we don't have responsibility we do and i also struggle with that the same as you do like what am i personally doing if we turn this conversation on ourselves like i I don't feel like i'm doing enough but i also don't really know what i should be doing do you have a defeatist attitude towards reversing climate change no I'm a very optimistic person in general, I would say. I actually am, I've pretty much conceded that it's probably going to be very difficult, if not impossible. Like, the chances are very low for us to turn it around. I mean, turn it around is really intense. I didn't say I think that we can turn it around. But I do think that there is still opportunity to slow the damage. I guess the, the thing is that, like, regardless of whether you are pessimistic or optimistic the key thing is like what attitude leads to you taking action like you can be a defeatist but i would not recommend being a defeatist that then doesn't do anything about the situation no but if you if you are defeatist then you almost don't need to do anything i guess that's like for me i believe that it's my my societal responsibility to play a part in slowing it but i also can see that it's probably you know something that will be very difficult to change yeah i'm not saying it's easy it's definitely difficult but like there was something else i was thinking about bringing up if we got around to it did you read the jonathan franzen piece in the new yorker about climate change i did not Okay, so Jonathan Franzen, who is a novelist I actually like, wrote an essay for The New Yorker recently that his take is essentially, there is nothing we can do. So he's a fatalist. Okay, he he writes, the radical destabilization of life on Earth is all but guaranteed. And he essentially says, like, in that response, he says that other kinds of action take on greater meaning. So essentially he's saying like, just go do other things. And I don't think that is the correct response. Do you see what I'm saying? I am, I'm trying to think of what, how to reply. So like, I think you can be extremely dismal as you're saying, you can concede that we're not gonna turn this around. But I would recommend having even like the tiniest shred of hope left in you enough to like propel you to continue reading about the situation and like taking action. I mean, I would say that my interest is to utilize the ability to tell stories as an opportunity to effectuate quicker change. Yeah. I think that's the best role I can play. I mean, that's great. I just think the the worst role to be in is to say, oh, hey, yeah, I know the earth is doomed, so I'm just going to keep living my life, like doing a hedonistic take. Do you know what I mean? 
Like, mm-hmm. the earth is doomed. I can't change it. I'm just going to enjoy my luxury goods and use single-use plastic as much as I want. Because it's, it's doomed anyway. Like, that, that's, that is the bad take. Is there anything else you wanted to add to no, this? No, I think that's everything. I especially enjoyed this this second discussion. Although I actually wasn't sure where it would go because I didn't have like a ton of notes. It was really reliant on what we could pull from, you know, all the points laid out. I think that you and I have messaged each other about the climate crisis back and forth, and we haven't really talked about it on making it up for a while now. And so it was really nice to like just get some of the recent feelings and responses out. Also, to answer your other question about the headphones, these were eleven twenty nine quid. Pounds? Yeah. Yeah. Sharice and I were talking about our headphones. Are balling on a budget? Well, how much were yours? I don't know. Mine were like not that expensive. I forget. Mine were like. But you said it made a significant on. difference. Yeah. So I don't know who who actually edits podcasts or does monitoring. But mine were, I think, seventy-seven U.S. dollars, oh, okay. which, in the grand scheme of things, are not, not so much that expensive. No, not yeah, at all. Yeah, I got, I somehow scored like a ten U.S. dollar off coupon from mm. eBay. I guess to continue on with your point, yeah, there's certain headphones that, generally speaking, are better for editing audio because of the way they accentuate, or I guess, don't accentuate the sound, right? It just creates a much flatter profile versus like if you had Beats headphones, which generally are much bassier. I'm very careful on how I describe this because I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be technical when I have no technical literacy. I mean, I kind of feel like we're talking about something that should be really obvious to people already, which is that like with better headphones, obviously you can hear better and therefore like edit audio better. But I think I think the thing is that better headphones comes with like an asterisk in terms of better headphones for different use cases. Well, there must be a plateau too, right? Like you can go up to a certain like dollar amount and then it just stops and then they're all about the same. That I don't know. Well, I don't I don't know. We're all we're both talking out of our ass now. I mean, the difference is that most people that listen to podcasts, I would say are probably not necessarily using the best headphones. They could be. I mean, they're don't pro- get me wrong. There's probably this large portion using AirPods or the wired earbuds yes. right now. Just like because we know yeah. that a large portion of you lovely listeners are listening on Apple Podcasts, the Apple Podcast app. So if that's the case, I'm just going to also assume that there's a good chunk of you using the Apple provided products. Yeah. That is a fair assessment. All right. So what was your big revelation of the week, Sharice? Oh, my gosh. This is only the third time we've been doing this. I'd like to ask Sharice what she's learned in the last seven days. Well, roughly seven days. Okay. This one is a little bit more personal than usual, I would say. I've been helping out in my program doing some additional work. It feels weird to call it additional, but I just voluntarily decided I wanted to help organize some things. And so I'm helping organize our cohort exhibition that comes in the middle of December. And I'm also helping organize a relationship between my class and the class that is incoming. Okay. And like, nobody specifically asked me to do this. I just felt like these were things that I cared about and had the bandwidth to do. So I was thinking to myself about how I became this type of person 
who would step up to want to do these things. And it is in some way kind of a leadership role, not to say that like I think of myself as, oh, I want to lead people, but it's more like I want to do this initiative. I don't see someone else doing it. So I will, you know, spearhead it to make it happen. Right. And so I was thinking about, okay, how did I become this person? Because I could swear that I wasn't like this maybe six, seven years ago. In terms of having a sense of leadership or wanting to pursue a leadership type role. Yeah. Yeah. Wanting to pursue a leadership type role and also feeling strongly about something and saying like, oh, I'm going to step up. I'm going to do it. Instead of like seeing, oh, this could be better, but I don't feel like stepping up and doing it. Okay. And this is where the personal part comes in. All of this is fine. I think it's because of having broken up with my former boyfriend. I think that that was the change in like really? a personal growth shift. So yeah, I guess what, what spawned that? Cause I was just trying to chart back. Like when do I think that I can say that I started changing from being a person who wouldn't take leadership roles into someone who would. And it seems to me to line up to when that relationship ended and I was single. It kind of makes sense. It says it says less about like that relationship, but more about like being a young independent single person. And I think the boring answer is just like when you're not in a relationship, but the other things in your life are healthy, then you have like this spare time and energy to dedicate to things that you're interested in. Got it. Okay. So it wasn't the breakup so much as the circumstances yeah. afforded yeah. to your lifestyle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't so much like whatever, a traumatic post-breakup or like related even to the relationship I was in, but just this change in being like with someone in a relationship and then not. And then, you know, having, like I said, just the emotional and energy resources to put into other things. I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. That's my insight. Deep feels from Sharice this week. Deep feels. How about you, Eugene? Um, what What is your big revelation? I think my big revelation, and it's the revelations are weird, right? Because it's not that you don't know about it, but it's whether you commit to that revelation, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So it's more like, oh shit, like this is relevant to me and I'm going to buy into this, even though I've heard of it before. And I think the, the, I think the revelation for me is that I think it's actually, it's, it, it's weirdly, it's weirdly connected to yours as well. And I think, and I think it's really about free time and unstructured time and what the outcome of unstructured time is. So I find that at times I used to, in the past anyways, you would try to line things up and have very little margin for error in terms of what you could get done. But a lot of times I think two things happened. You would just kind of like burn yourself out a little bit but also you didn't allow things to roll over if it needed more time mm. or there's unforeseen circumstances, right? You were constraining and yourself. Yeah, and I feel that now there is a part of me that rather than going like 100 miles per hour, it's picking the most important things and giving them enough time and space to breathe. And this is like the thing too that I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just getting old or whatever. Just an old ass man. But like, when I think about it, I do wonder if I'm, I if if the the tasks now are more challenging, or in the past the tasks were easier and they were easier to power through because it you might have been tired, but mentally it wasn't very challenging. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like when you get older, maybe you have bigger problems to solve, and those bigger problems might need an extra day or two to solve versus like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to just like figure out whatever solution I can, even though it's, you know, 1.45 a.m. and I'm really tired. 
Also, also, maybe it's when you get older, you you can see more clearly the distinction between your own functionality. Like you know what you're like when you're really tired and how you're operating, and you know really well. If I was like fully rested and have enough time, then I can reach like this kind of optimal performance level. That's actually a really good point because I do feel that I know that something might be a slog right now, and it'll be really difficult for me to do. But if I'm well rested, it'll take me ten minutes. Yeah, yeah, and I think when you're younger, you don't know yourself as well yet. Yeah, potentially. So, I I think that's like an interesting thing, and also now it's trying to prioritize things based on time zones. Meaning, if I need to deliver something to somebody on an Asian time zone, then that might take precedence. Mm. And I might do something that's due on a US or European time zone. Mm. I might just find a way to put those ref- respectively into the right, I guess, prioritization list. That's very practical. Good practical, practical. advice. I think that is a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Megan.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.